Because of COVID-19, there have been 100 million missed cancer screenings across Europe and a million missed diagnoses. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, cancer, as health services around the world fought tirelessly against COVID-19. What happened to other killer diseases? COVID-19 has been disruptive to our world, and unfortunately, the impact it has had on cancer has been really dramatic. We hear from this head of oncology at a major pharmaceuticals company. We're seeing delays in screening, delay in testing, delays in diagnosis. Screening rates are abysmal across the globe in lung cancer. Finding cancer early is vital if it's to be treated. This cancer surgeon in India tells us the real-world impact that delays caused by COVID have had on his patients. This went on for a year, and by the time he had a scan done, he had a metastatic lesion in the lung, and we could not even operate on him. Bad news, certainly. But we'll look at possible solutions, lessons learned from COVID, new technologies, and political will to fight cancer. All those we lost, all those we miss, we can end cancer as we know it. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating or a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pommer at the World Economic Forum and with this episode for World Cancer Day 2022... promise we can do this. This is Radio Davos. Before the pandemic... Cancer experts were trumpeting successes in reducing cancer deaths. In the United States, for example, between 1991 and 2017, cancer deaths decreased by 29%. But COVID-19 paralysed healthcare systems around the world. And while some elective surgeries, ones that are not immediate emergency procedures, can wait, when it comes to cancer, early diagnosis and treatment are vital. Later in the show, we'll go to a cancer hospital in Mumbai to hear from a cancer surgeon on what life has been like during COVID-19 and what has to happen now. And we'll speak to the head of the cancer business unit of pharmaceuticals firm AstraZeneca. But first, here's some politics and policy. The 4th of February is World Cancer Day 2022, and just ahead of that, US President Joe Biden announced a new push against cancer, something he initially announced as his moonshot project when he was vice president a few years ago, and something he spoke about at length at a World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos. Here he is speaking at a press conference in Washington this week. Our message today is this. We can do this. I promise you, we can do this. All those we lost all those we miss, we can end cancer as we know it. I committed to this fight when I was vice president. It's one of the reasons why, quite frankly, I ran for president. Let there be no doubt, now that I am president, this is a presidential White House priority. I'm proud to announce our plan to supercharge the cancer moonshot as a central effort of the Biden-Harris administration. It's bold, it's ambitious, but it's completely doable. Just as we harness the science to develop cutting-edge COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, we'll bring a fierce sense of urgency to the fight against cancer. The goal is to cut the cancer death rate in half in the next 25 years, at least by 50%. I don't know anyone who's not been hit one way or another by cancer. So, to get a sense of the human impact of the disease, let's hear a clip from Biden's vice president, Kamala Harris, who spoke at the same press conference about the death of her own mother, who had been a cancer researcher. You see, after a lifetime working to end cancer, cancer ended my mother's life. I will never forget the day that she sat my sister and me down and told us she had been diagnosed with colon cancer. 
it was one of the worst days of my life. And an experience that, sadly, millions and millions of people in our country have had. My mother was a fighter, all five feet of her. You would have thought she was seven feet, but she was only five. And as I cared for her during those many months, I watched her courageous fight. But after countless rounds of chemo, her body gave out. She was transferred from the hospital to hospice. And in fact, one of the last questions she asked the hospice nurse was, are my daughters going to be okay? I miss my mother every day and I carry her memory with me wherever I go. Kamala Harris. So what impact has COVID had on cancer? To answer that, I spoke to AstraZeneca, most often mentioned these days in relation to its COVID vaccine, but the company's also heavily involved in cancer care. David Fredrickson, Executive Vice President of AstraZeneca's Oncology Business Unit, caught my eye with a blog he wrote for the World Economic Forum's website, Agenda. The blog was called Cancer, How to Stop the Next Global Health Crisis. I asked him to summarise the problem. One of the things that we certainly know, and all of us have experienced it, is that COVID-19 has been disruptive to our world and in lifestyles in so many ways. Um, unfortunately, the impact, though, that it has had on cancer has been really dramatic. And it's as simple as the following, which is that cancer is best treated if we're able to catch it early, diagnose it early, and ensure that the best treatments get to patients. And we're seeing delays in screening, delay in testing, delays in diagnosis. And that is really creating a second problem that is a healthcare crisis on the heels of what we already know has been a huge problem with the pandemic. And, and just to, Robin, put a couple of numbers around this so that it's, it's not just qualitative. The European Cancer Organization predicts that because of COVID-19, there have been 100 million missed cancer screenings across Europe and a million misdiagnoses. Uh, the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network reported that more than three quarters of people actively undergoing treatment for cancer had to delay some aspect of their care as a result of COVID-19. And we know the earlier we catch cancer, the better. I mean, we know that even a four-week delay in beginning treatment can be associated with increased mortality. So um, the facts really do point to the importance of us having vigilance around this. Yeah, because it's been kind of anecdotal, hasn't it? So for two years, hospitals all over the world have been overrun by COVID-19 and people have been told to stay away. There have been lockdowns and they were always right from the start concerns raised that how would this affect people with ongoing medical problems. But now we're starting, two years now on from that, we're starting to see actual figures and you've put some figures to it. What can be done then? So we're two years in now. I guess we're all hoping that COVID might be in retreat at some point. You know, um, we had Dr. Fauci on Radio Davos just last week saying that perhaps Omicron could signal that we're in the end game, but there were lots and lots of caveats. But what do you see in terms of cancer treatment and in terms of cancer detection? What needs to be done? So I think that the first critical step is 
ensuring that there's high awareness around this fact that we need to have a return to routine visits, especially for those people who are at risk for potentially a cancer diagnosis. Uh, We have been a part at AstraZeneca of a effort to develop a campaign called New Normal Same Cancer. Uh, That campaign's whole objective has been outreach to the public about the importance of resuming their routine, routine visits to their primary care physicians and for them really making sure uh, that they don't wait to go in and, and, and get their regular checkups. It's been a program that we've launched uh, in partnership across the globe. It's in over 40 countries. And we have really found that, that that message has been a really important one. Again, anecdotal, but we've received emails from New Zealand of a woman who said, as a result of this, I went and had my checkup. And the bad news is, is that I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But the good news is, is that I wouldn't have gone to actually have that checkup if it weren't for the campaign. So I do think that's the first piece. I think that the second piece, and, and perhaps this is the place for optimism, Robin, within the pandemic, is I do think that there is a receptivity to working together between private and public sector to be able to tackle some of the most significant healthcare challenges that we face. And I think that COVID showed us that if we work together between global organizations and local and also between private and public, that we can move the needle on really difficult issues. And I think that um, that's perhaps the, the, the silver lining of what we've seen as possible uh, through the last couple of years. Are there ways in which the pandemic has resulted in improvements to cancer care? Indeed, um, there are some places where I think a push towards healthcare system sustainability and also a need to be able to ask patients to not come into hospital and the clinic has has proven to be a source of innovation. So we have, for example, been able to eliminate visits and follow-up that may have taken place for more administrative reasons and clinical trials, but that we ultimately decided aren't adding that much value. Why would we ask a patient to come in for this follow-up? It's burdensome to them. It creates a bad experience and we're not getting that much out of it. So I think that there's been a lot of work to streamline the patient experience and to be able to do more remotely within the trial context. I also think that um, we've seen some really important Uh, work being done by health authorities to um, streamline their regulatory processes. So without actually having a uh, adverse impact on the safety of medicines, looking at ways for, you know, if more convenient dosing schedules uh, are available, that for example, we we, we had one of our medicines that we we moved from a three-week dosing schedule to a four-week dosing schedule, just because that means fewer hospital visits. Perhaps before COVID, the process for getting that approved might have taken several months. And as a result of COVID, we found that we were able to do it in several weeks. And this shows that partnership between health authorities and companies to streamline this in in, in service of patients. I think we've also looked for more ways to bring trials to patients, like I mentioned, through digital tools and other mechanisms. I think that also um, we see a lot more telehealth and digital health 
And I think that these, again, are important evolutions um, that will be sources of innovation that will be persistent going forward. So we're talking a lot about work being hybrid now. You know, there's kind of been a revolution in the workplace. People aren't all going to go back to the office or the workplace. There's going to be hybrid working. So what you're suggesting is when it comes to medicine as well, there'll be the good elements of not going in person to see your physician. Perhaps some of that will stay if we can do it the right way. I I absolutely think so. And of course, with something like cancer, there's always going to be a need for in-person visits um, for certain tests and procedures and labs uh, that are going to need to take place. But I do think that we're seeing quite a lot more that's evolving, that's less invasive, that's easier to administer. And I think that all of this improves the patient experience quite dramatically. And I think that that's every bit as important um, as we think about um, what we're trying to do for patients, the outcomes that they have, meaning, you know, how, how, how much, you know, are we actually really improving their, their medical outcomes, but also the experience and the quality of life that they have and all of these factors, uh, are, are impacted by, by frankly, staying out of, uh, hospitals as much as possible. Now, another element you touched on in your blog was about screening and new ways of screening for lung cancer. Are you able to tell us something about that? Yeah, absolutely. We've been working with four leading organizations uh, on an effort called the Lung Ambition Alliance. The Lung Ambition Alliance is really aiming to do three things. First, to increase screening and early diagnosis. Second, to help the delivery of innovative medicines across the globe. And, And lastly, to improve quality of care. And it's really on this first piece on screening where we've put the most effort. And it's because unfortunately, screening rates are abysmal across the globe in lung cancer. It's not a type of cancer that you you think people get screened for. There's a handful of cancers where in certain countries, in certain parts of the world, you know, there are screening procedures in, but lung cancer, I'm not aware of that. Yeah. And in part, um, it's because Lung cancer screening is today defined most well for smokers or former smokers. And so I think that um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to better define risk factors in lung cancer for non-smokers, um, because that's also a very you know, significant population who, for other reasons than smoking, do develop lung cancer. We've been working very diligently because lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death, to take action on how do we really make sure that we're driving early screening initiatives across the globe and really working hard for people to understand the cost of inaction as it relates to outcomes and survival. Because we know that the earlier that we treat, the better the outcomes. And we're making great progress, Robin, in terms of science and technology and data that is allowing us to be able to, I think, really bring the promise of hopefully cure, but we've got to diagnose it early enough in order to be able to do that. Yeah, you put some numbers in your blog here. Lung cancer kills 1.8 million people every year. Costs, obviously the emotional cost, but also the economic costs, 19 billion euros each year on lung cancer in Europe alone. Yet only around one in five patients with lung cancer are diagnosed at stage one, diagnosed at that early stage where treatment is going to be most likely to have 
you know, the, the desired effect. And then you go on to talk about low-dose CT scans, which is, I guess, the new technology that, that you're talking about. How would that work in practice? Yeah, so low-dose CT scan is, is actually a technology that we've had for quite a long time. It's not the most innovative new technology that we have, but it is indeed quite effective. Part of the challenge is, of course, you know, how do we make sure that we get patients that are at risk to be identified and, 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 and then go through low-dose CT scanning? Uh, I think one of the places that the most progress has been made on this is indeed within the UK. I think that um, uh, throughout Europe, we're, we're beginning to make progress uh, by working locally on uh, mobile units uh, that are mobile uh, low-dose CT scanning units and where there's an opportunity for uh, people to be able to understand if their risk factors uh, make it such that they should be getting uh, low-dose CT scanning and trying to do it right there in a mobile unit um, so that there can be the opportunity to, to, to make that screening happen at that time. Another mechanism, Robin, that we're really pushing forward is this, that lung cancer oftentimes is diagnosed as a result of something else that happens. So somebody will have you know, a car accident and they'll get a scan. And in that scan, they'll see what's called a, a nodule. And it's that incidental nodule that needs to be worked up to understand if it could be cancerous. And so uh, incidental nodule clinics and protocols and procedures around that is another important way, along with low-dose CT scanning, that we're really working on, on trying to make sure that those are getting well-established. And then for the future, there's been really exciting advancements in blood-based screening. And I'm hopeful that over the course of the next several years that we will see relatively low-invasive blood-based screening technologies begin to become part of the norm that are not just effective at being able to screen for lung cancer, but multi-cancer screening that through a simple blood test, and this is not science fiction. I mean, this is this. there are companies that are doing this today that will begin to be able to diagnose at early stages cancers before they become advanced and difficult to treat. Talking of science fiction, that's actually science fact, artificial intelligence has been talked about a lot in the last few years at being great at detecting cancers. Is that going to be an important thing? It is something that will be important. And in fact, artificial intelligence, if you just take a look at the entire research and development process for oncology, is going to play a really important role. Specifically on your question, one place where AI is already beginning to make a difference is in reading pathology scans and, and really working to try to detect and see, can we pick up perhaps through AI, early cancers that the normal eye doesn't see. And so that's something that we certainly are already seeing progress on. Um, also, outside of the screening realm, using artificial intelligence to be able to better take a look at a patient's genomic profile together with their actual clinical history to be able to determine what are the best treatments that we could be utilizing based on comparing a patient's profile to all of the other database of information that we have on patients that look like the patient that's in front of us to be able to really better tailor and make more precise the approaches and the treatments that we're going to make for patients. So certainly big data, artificial intelligence are revolutionizing the way in which we do drug discovery, drug development, and the delivery of medicines to patients.
We started this conversation talking about the impact of COVID-19 on cancer. And you talked about this getting back to a, a new normal with the same disease. When do you think we'll be back to a new normal? It might be impossible to say because it will depend on the city and the state and the country, people who are involved in treating cancer and people who have cancer. When will the whole COVID effect just not really be anything they take into account anymore? Are we talking about six months, a year, several years? There's going to be this kind of hangover effect from COVID-19? It really is a critical question, Robin. I don't have the crystal ball to know exactly when the new normal, as you say, will commence. What I do know is that we remain today with cancer diagnoses and cancer treatment rates below pre-COVID baseline levels and probably about 10 to 20% below pre-COVID baseline levels, depending upon region in the globe and what tumor type we're talking about. But it's, it's, it's pretty consistent across the board. I'm pretty concerned that that will remain this way, especially with Omicron um, and the influx that we simply saw in, in, in the number of cases and hospitalizations that came with that. But I do also at the same time believe that the health systems are evolving in order to be able to have to now work in a more endemic-like environment within this. And we've been working now for two years on making sure that the collateral damage to cancer care is something that we create a lot of awareness around. It's why I'm grateful that we have the focus here as part of this podcast on the importance of this. And um, I think that the imperative is, is that for all of us, the new normal needs to begin now, because I think that we, 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 we need to just accept that probably waves of this as part of our future, this being of, of, of some version of variance. And so I think that we've got to make sure that we're approaching cancer with an assumption that the world never goes back to what it looked like uh, pre-COVID. David Fredrickson of AstraZeneca. You're listening to Radio Davos, where this week we're talking about cancer and COVID. We'll be right back after this short break. Job number one for all leaders is to stop using the sky as an open sewer. Al Gore has a special perspective on leadership. He served as a congressman, senator, and U.S. vice president. He's also been a singular voice for the climate. We don't have time for despair. We don't have time to get depressed. It's an all-hands-on-deck time. He talked to Meet the Leader about the practical skills leaders must strengthen for climate action and why he's personally training thousands on those skills through an initiative he founded, the Climate Reality Project. We have the solutions. We need the policies and the the political decisions and business decisions to, to implement them. He explained the tipping point he sees ahead and the critical role policymakers will play. He also shared how he's changed as a leader and the advice he wished he'd had when he started. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen to my conversation with Al Gore on the next Meet the Leader. You're listening to Radio Davos. Before the break, we heard from AstraZeneca about the problems COVID has caused for cancer care. To get a view from the front line of the fight against cancer, I spoke to the head of surgical oncology at Lilavati Hospital in Mumbai, Jagannath Palepu. I asked Dr. Jagannath, or Dr. J, as he likes to be known, what was his experience during the last two years? The plight of the non-COVID patients has not been highlighted. And let me tell you that cancer patients particularly face many hardships and hurdles in the last two years. 
the first wave was in March 2020 approximately. This I would call as a wave of lockdowns. The government simply closed down uh, everything and the hospitals were asked to earmark 80% of beds. This was a time when uh, we had little information, lots of sick patients. So all the elective surgeries were kind of uh, put on the background and uh, we had to tell the patients to wait. And they come back to us saying that, how long? And we kept postponing and there were delays. There's no doubt about it. How serious were the consequences of those delays? We all know that cancer, it needs early detection and early treatment. I mean, did you see some cases where things went terribly wrong because of those delays? Yeah, most certainly. I think one uh, uh, patient whom I, I cannot uh, really forget also happens to be my friend and an accountant whom we had operated for a sarcoma of the thigh three years ago. He was very particular on his follow-ups, regular chest x-rays and CT scans every four months. But then when the COVID pandemic started, the hospitals uh, shut down the clinics and we really had uh, no place where he could get a good scan done. So this went on for a year. And by the time the next year came in and we had a scan done, he had a metastatic lesion in the lung and that had also increased and we could not even operate on him and he had to undergo uh, chemotherapy and radiation. I feel particularly bad because here is an educated patient with access to care but simply could not just do a regular follow-up. So there were plenty of cases where elective surgery had to be uh, deferred because the ICUs were full, the beds were not available and the transportation was extremely difficult. Was, was there a period during which there was no cancer work going on at all? Or did you manage to keep some of it going? We did manage to keep some of it going because, uh, see, cancer, as you know, can be classified as a semi-emergency. So we did keep it going. But some of those tumors which had a very slow growth, no symptoms, those we had to uh, say that, you know, we just had to wait for some time. We were also worried about the patients getting uh, infected in the hospital. So that was another worry which kept us uh, telling patients to be a little uh, careful. Believe me, operating with a PPE suit at that time, about four to six hours on a complex cancer surgery, that was a task. I think the worst hit, I would say, uh, were the chemotherapy patients. Because they had to come repeatedly for uh, cycles of chemotherapy. And uh, every time they had to do their RT-PCR, the tests were difficult and, uh, in the earlier period. So they had a tough time and many of them had to be shifted on oral therapy. So I think they had a double risk of getting exposed to COVID every time they used to come. Many of them dropped out of therapy just because they could not handle it uh, anymore. So what's the situation like now? Presumably the lockdown has gone, but you must have a, a backlog, I'm assuming, of these elective surgeries that you weren't able to do over, over that period. What, what's it like now? So the last year, what has happened was we did have a window. Every single day we operated and tried to clear as much of backlog as uh, possible. That was when the team kind of worked uh, day and night to clear all the major uh, surgeries and we did substantial uh, uh, output and just when we were thinking that we are now kind of on the roll, 
then the second wave of delta hit us that brought on a lot of morbidity and mortality and again there was setback because once again the icus were full with very sick patients there were a lot of shortage of supplies and the cancer patients took a back seat i think cancer dialysis patients some patients with angina they were very badly hit in this uh, the second wave current wave is omicron and delta as i talk to you uh, when i'm on the third day of quarantine i would say that uh, three fourth of my resident staff were all in quarantine at one time half the nurses were in quarantine this wave omicron has hit the healthcare workers most my residents particularly working for last two years without a break would not even go home were just about looking for a little holiday in december when omicron hit and most of them went into quarantine so we didn't have workforce residents are coming back after five days six days when they are fine back into the wards and i must admire with as though nothing has happened to him all of us i think i'm sure all of you will be looking for this one single question when is it going to end can i just ask you you mentioned earlier on um your patient who is also your friend the accountant and you said the cancer spread from his leg to his lungs how is he now he is through his uh, chemotherapy and unfortunately we could not offer him surgery so he undergo radiation he is okay he is weak because of therapy he had challenges but you know in a sarcoma surgery is always the first and the best option i feel terrible that a potentially operable lesion if detected early could have uh, has had to progress this is the same story we had for many many patients one thing which has happened which is i think happened for good is most of the patients then took the treatment in the local places so the kind of the cancer care got distributed to the level 2 tier 2 and tier 3 cities ensured that the patients are taken care throughout the pandemic every single day i see at least 10 patients on my uh, teleconsult platform give them the right kind of advice so that their care is taken care and also refer them to the appropriate uh, oncologist or surgeon who can take care of them closer to their place this this kind of a innovation and use of technology is certainly is going to stay with us for cancer care i feel that technology is the key if we have used this emerging technologies uh, use telemedicine extensively remote diagnosis and remote uh, uh, treatment this is the way to go in fact now we are doing a project with meghalaya very hilly region where we may be using drones to take the chemotherapy drugs all the way across the hills to the patient's location so remote care remote monitoring and tele uh, medicine are the keys for the future which is which the pandemic has kind of accelerated so i think overall there is there are some you know positive elements in the pandemic too dr j we wish you all the best with your important work and all the best to your patients as well uh thanks so much for joining us on radio davos thank you so much robin thanks for this opportunity 
Dr. Jagannath, Chairman of the Department of Surgical Oncology at Lilavati Hospital and Research Centre in Mumbai. Before him, you heard David Fredrickson of AstraZeneca. To learn more about technological advances that can help us fight cancer, the World Economic Forum has produced a policy paper called First Cancer Care, Leveraging Fourth Industrial Revolution Technologies for Cancer Care. Find that on our website, weform.org, where you can also find lots more coverage of this and many other important global issues. Issues. And you can find all our podcasts, including Meet the Leader and the World Economic Forum Book Club. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to them and to Radio Davos. Leave us a rating or review and join the conversation about podcasts on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with editing by Jerry Johansson and studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>